Kickstarter launched in 2009 in the middle of the Great Recession. At a time when people were losing their jobs, their homes, Kickstarter felt like a place where good things happened. Dear Internet, I need your help. I'm trying to make a CD. Hello, Internet. My name is Allison Weiss. You may know me from the Internet or from real life. I'm coming to you today because I need your help. I'm recording a new EP in June, and it's going to be really good. I mean, I think it's going to be good. You'll probably like it. With Kickstarter, you didn't need to convince a record label to give you $2,000 for printing in a bad economy. You could ask your community to pitch in. I don't know if you know this about me, but I do everything all by myself. I don't have a label or a manager or any of that stuff. So I'm trying to raise $2,000 to press the first 1,000 copies. If you donate, not only are you going to help me out a lot, but you're going to get cool things like exclusive tracks. and. In three days on Kickstarter, Alison Wise met her $2,000 goal. In 31 days, 205 people on the internet had collectively pledged $7,711 to help her make her album. Now, not all projects on Kickstarter succeeded. Most of the projects I backed failed. If a project didn't meet its funding goal, money was never exchanged. But loads of projects did, and plenty that you likely know about. Peloton, the Pebble Watch, a self-cleaning litter box all launched out of the platform. But often what's missing in the recounting of Kickstarter success is that the platform didn't just help catapult projects into existence. Kickstarter opened up, as its co-founder Yancy Strickler says, a whole new economy based on the generosity of people supporting a fellow human being. And in doing it, Kickstarter captured the kind of attention that advertising and marketing dollars simply cannot buy. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, we're going to be talking to Kickstarter co-founder and former CEO, Yancy Strickler. We'll be talking to him about how Kickstarter evolved as a company, and about how his experience there helped shape his newest project, a book that came out last year called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. We reached him at home in Los Angeles. And because we recorded this interview earlier this year, it's blissfully pandemic-free. So, Yancy, thank you very much for agreeing to join this conversation. If you don't mind, I'd love to start at Kickstarter. Yeah, sure, sure. Perry Chen is probably the more visible face of Kickstarter, but um, you are a co-founder of Kickstarter. So could you talk us through how that happened, what that relationship is or was? Well, there are three co-founders of Kickstarter, um, Perry Chen, Charles Adler, and myself. Perry first had the idea for Kickstarter in 2001. He was looking to throw a concert in New Orleans and didn't have the means to make it happen and had this notion of what if I proposed the idea for the concert on the internet, but no one be charged unless the show sold out. Uh, but, you know, 2001, 2002, when he had that idea, it was just a very different era of the internet. And a few years later, he moved to New York where he and I met in 2005. I was a music journalist, a music critic, writing about records for Pitchfork and The Village Voice and Spin Magazine. And I ran a record label. And we got to be friends and he told me about this idea he'd had. And it was the idea for, you know, what people came to call crowdfunding. Right. And so we decided to start working on that and working on that together. And and really focused on applying this model that Perry had dreamed up of like um, this all or nothing conditional project model 
um, and applying that to creative and artistic projects, which is the world that we came from. And then about a year and a half after he and I started working on together, we hooked up with Charles Adler, who is a designer. Uh, and then three of us were co-founders. And, you know, from the time, the, the amount of time from when Perry had the first idea to the site launching was about eight years. It was about four years after I got involved. And so that process of getting it built, that whole project, you know, was just sort of really borne out for all of us of being creative people, knowing how hard it is to get a, a project funded. You know, if you're trying to get a project funded, you're sitting across from a room full of executives who are looking to put money into things that will be hits. And you as an artist are often contort your idea to try to meet what you think their expectations are. Right. And and our belief in, with creating Kickstarter was that there should be a world where ideas can be funded, not because of their financial upside, but simply because people wanted them to exist. Where did the money come from to actually fund Kickstarter? You know, the funding almost all came from creative people. I mean, the the very first investor into Kickstarter was the actor, comedian David Cross. It's good. Yeah. It's going to be good. It's right. going to be good. I'm hoping the universe provides a path for me. The television show Arrested Development was being canceled at the time. And I had this idea of like, we, this should be the first Kickstarter project. We should try to save Arrested Development instead of right. fans like mailing bananas to Fox, they should pay for a season. And so... Um, Perry got a meeting with David because he went to college with his cousin and pitched David on this idea. And David's answer was, y'all don't know how the entertainment industry works. Like, no way will they go for this. But he, as an artist, like, loved it and thought, like, he would totally use something like this. So he ended up being the first money. And nice. almost all those first investors were all artists who were like, yeah, I would totally use this. Um, weirdly or interestingly, it was... The more traditional finance people, the venture capital people who had a harder time seeing the idea, you know, their perspective was like, these are starving artists. They're starving for a reason. Like, how is there going to be money there? Right. And, you know, we, you know, our answer was there are, there are fans who appreciate people and the, you know, people are missing it. We're only recognizing artists that have a certain size audience, but the world is far bigger than that. And that's, that's the world we wanted to, to speak to. No, I was just going to say this. The birth of Kickstarter feels very familiar to me because we transfer, I think, came from a very similar place and that it was an, a sort of design initiative that um, was picked up first and foremost by artists and creators. So once you've got a little bit of backing, did you launch Kickstarter with your own, with projects that you guys were trying to get commissioned or was it other people's work? The, the very first project was by Perry to like make a t-shirt. The second project was by Perry and I with our friend Claudia together to make a book. That first project failed. That second project was successful. But yeah, we were the first two. But within that first week, there were probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 that launched. Um, really built the site with kind of a, uh, a scarcity mindset at the beginning where to start a project, you had to be invited by us. And mm -hmm. if you got invited, you could have five invites to give to other people. But we... You know, for me, coming from the music world, and this is the era when MySpace was still dominant, like, uh, I was very aware of how cultures of websites get set so early on by those early users, and MySpace had been overwhelmed by music. Right. Um, and so, like, even though I came from the music world, when we're sourcing those first projects, I tried to stay away from music as much as possible um, and just try to bring in a breadth of people. So that, that worked. That early group of people were... Some of them we knew, but 
people were like hitting up their friends trying to get invites to start projects because you know this was like a new tool that was just providing something that i think the independent creative community had long wanted and you know hadn't existed in this nice a form and there was sort of this like scene validation like i i remember when the first modern dance project, like a dance troupe from Brooklyn launched a project to raise three grand or something for their season. That happened maybe four or five months in. It was the first dance project on the site. And then within two weeks, there were like a dozen more. And I realized that that first project had validated Kickstarter to their community. Right. Um, And so it just sort of grew that way, just really like community by community, scene by scene. And so the growth wasn't hockey stick. It was a slighter slope than that. But it, it, it just came from artists saying to their friends, hey, you know, here's this thing and and others seeing that it worked for them. I mean, I can remember spending a lot of money and I say spending because I used to think that it was an investment that I was helping something and I was going to get something back from it. But I would say the 90% of the things that I backed on Kickstarter never came to anything. And when they did, it wasn't always guaranteed that you were going to get or receive something that had, you know, had been produced. That's an, uh, I mean, just a point out that the numbers say 91% of projects deliver. Really? Somehow you manage to back every bad project. So I think you should check your your taste level or your ability to suss out quality. Uh, but yeah, nine out of 10 projects fulfill. Wow. No, I think it's genius, right? And I, the hype around it, I mean, I can remember how much time we were spending and looking and analyzing you know, what was doing well and whether we should do it and whether we should consider actually, you know, some of the projects that we were trying to get off the ground to come through Kickstarter. Because I think it was one of the greatest marketing tools that you could possibly, I mean, you used the word, which was validation. And I think that for so many people, so many creators is so important, right? That you've got an idea, but you just don't know whether or not anybody else is really going to like it. And by doing a Kickstarter campaign, you just get that validation, which sometimes is just a confidence boost to get over your initial doubt hurdle. I think that's where it was so powerful for so many people. And I'm talking about it as if it's in the past. It's, of course, not in the past. Yeah, I mean, I would say that when I had a record label, I would just sign baby bands and put out their first album, their first EP or whatever, and then try to help them get signed to a, quote, real label from then on. And I did that after seeing a couple of the first bands that I'd signed, like, get approached by bigger labels. And, like, for them, the notion of signing the terms for that deal, regardless of the financial outcome, what it really was was it was validating them in the eyes of their family. Those people in that band, they want to be able to say to their family, look, I have a record deal. I'm real. This thing I've been doing matters. It wasn't BS. And that was really the itch people wanted to scratch. I mean, it was making great music, yes, but it was like having that ease of mind of knowing that you've proven to the people in your life who've probably doubted your choice that, you know, that you were right. And so, I always thought about Kickstarter as like the people's validation. Uh, You know, we want gatekeepers to do that. And of course, who wouldn't? I've been with so many project creators during the process of funding, even at the moment that like their project tips over, that it launches and they feel that first wave of support. And when people launch a Kickstarter, it's, they get to have that sort of moment in the sun of, of realizing, wow, like people really care about me and this thing that I do. Those moments are, are hard to find. And so that kind of emotional social validation was a very conscious part. And it's just as, as artists and creative people, it's something that, you know, we just cannot get enough of. I think what's genius about Kickstarter too is that you built in community. So a lot of other tools you needed to go externally to access a community. So today you'd have to pay for it because those are all complete lockdown echo chambers. But Kickstarter had its built-in community. So you didn't really need to have any marketing money 
to do anything you know, with that project once it had been funded. It would almost grow itself. You know, we're, we're Kickstarter as a, a two sided marketplace, but we always saw that the creators were our customers and that the backers are the creators community. The creators own that relationship and the creators know the best way to speak to that audience. And so we shouldn't try to get in the way of that. And so all the way we thought about product and like the brand and just what we were building was always thinking about what is it that the independent creator needs? What kind of environment do they want to be in? But the beauty of Kickstarter is that, you know, because it's just, it's a nicely designed framework and template to make an elevated ask to your community that every creator who launches a project immediately sends like the best email they possibly can to all the people that are most important to them. And so there's that deep validation that happens that for us as a platform, you know, just let us grow through already extraordinarily strong relationships. Um, Kickstarter always felt very organic and genuine. And from a, you know, this is an advertising podcast, right? So we're trying to get into some of the good, the bad and the ugly around, you know, advertising and marketing and what Kickstarter always felt to me was just a very genuine story. And, you know, the best sort of advertising and marketing is when it really comes from a very authentic place where you've got a great product. You don't need to put any spin around it. You're just literally going to say what it does on the tin and that's it. So it feels like in the real world, it would be the farmer's market. You've got a great product and you're going to just go and test it. You know, you're not going to buy a store and put it into, you know, Fifth Avenue. You're just going to put it into a farmer's market and see what the local community thinks of it. And if they endorse it or validate it in your words, then you might take it to the next level and do something else with it. And Kickstarter felt to me like it was that sort of farmer's market stool, just allowing people in a very humble and natural way to get a proof of concept out there. That that was definitely true of like, it's punk indie marketing, people sharing with friends. But there became a moment in 2012 when projects started raising millions of dollars on Kickstarter for the first time that um, we saw the advertising kind of language enter the platform. That ended up being really, really challenging and troubling for us. And so during the midst of this period when projects are raising millions of dollars for the first time and, you know, it really is like the hockey stick moment, we launched a set of rules uh, called Kickstarter is Not a Store that set new guidelines that is explicitly trying to block the language of advertising finding its way into Kickstarter. And so we prohibited the use of product simulations, like saying, here's what's happening in this video, but you're not actually proving it. We said you couldn't show 3D renderings or things that might fool a viewer into thinking something is real when it isn't, that you must show your working prototype, you must show like the ugly breadboard, and that rather than be a platform solely based on what we hope projects will be, that you know we want to be a platform based on the reality of what projects currently are and embracing the challenge of what it is to to build them. But I remember in the lead up to that, um, I reached out to a lot of people in the design community to run these rules by them, and in particular to run by, what do you think about the idea of banning photorealistic product renderings? And I spoke to people at big design agencies and design schools, and I got a lot of pushback on that. People saying, well, that's just the language of how this works. That's how we do things. And we just felt like for a platform like ours, that's supposed to be community-based, that's people sharing ideas with each other, that, you know, that feels wrong. So we ended up instituting those kinds of rules just to try to shape the language more, to take it away from like too much sizzle. And that's a -a whack-a-mole battle that goes forever. What's a favorite project for you? What's one for you that you're particularly proud of that you help bring to the world? I mean, there's different categories of things. I mean, like... 
say two things I use the most on a daily basis. Uh, one would be the transparent speaker. I love that speaker. I think it's a beautiful design. If you ever come across that project um, from People People, I think is the name of that design firm. I, I didn't support the Kickstarter, but I'm now a Peloton bike user and Peloton okay. started as a Kickstarter project. Of course. Um, and then on a personal level, probably the one I liked the most was a father and a daughter in Atlanta, Georgia, who wanted to conduct a census of all the squirrels in the park by their house and made a quite nice poster of. <laughs> and I supported that just because, like, there's no way in the world that's happening <laughs> other all than right. something like a Kickstarter project. And it's a father-daughter thing together. And because of just who I am, I, I like the things that are kind of most frivolous, just because to me, those are just pure expressions of just creativity. And why not? So, I mean, you're doing all this good in the world, and I think a lot of it is good, right? I really think you give people opportunity to tell stories and opportunity to share something as crazy as the squirrel census. Why would you leave it? Well, I mean, I was, um, you know, I, I spent about 12 years on it, um, and the last four of which as CEO. And, you know, I ended up getting burnt out. Um, you know, I think... Um, I was always uh, the external face to the creative community. And so much of my time as CEO was spent recruiting people to join the organization, recruiting projects. And, you know, for me, that kind of like external work, I, you know, I just put all myself into that. You know, Kickstarter is a very natural sort of expression of who I am. And I, I was able to like really bring my true self to that, which is also mean that I, I ran that tank empty. And, I didn't know that it was happening. There's a couple things that sort of happened in my last year that sort of, I think, showed that just was not in a good trajectory for me. Like what? Like what? There's always some challenge you're going through, right? And um, I was supposed to leave for work, and my wife walked by the front door like five five minutes after I told her goodbye, and and I was just still standing there inside in front of the door, and I and I remember I was standing there, and I couldn't lift my arm somehow to open the door. Like I, like my body felt even too tired to do that. And when my wife asked me what was going on, I, yeah, I just said, I, I can't, I can't go be that person today. Like that need to be on to such a great degree. I know it took its toll after a while, but it was hard. I mean, I, I didn't, again, I didn't know it was happening. I think till, until I reached a point of, yeah, talking about it with Perry, talking about it with the board, you know, you know we started having this conversation of, you know, should I still be the CEO, you know? And, and I brought that conversation to them and, um, through that, you know, decided, no, decided no. And I, and I also decided through that, that I wanted to just look forward to next projects. I could try to stay involved with the company. I could, you know, stay on the board, do those kinds of things. You know, I felt like sticking around would be more about what I wanted versus like really thinking about what's best for the organization. And so that really returned to, the life I had before of being a writer, um, which has been wonderful. It was a hard choice. And probably like the year and a half after that, I was still trying to figure out what was going on for me and, you know, how I felt about the whole experience. And, and now with time, it's funny. It's like only now after two and a half years of being out of the job, do I feel like I have a good handle on what I was doing. But like at the time, it's so, it's so hard to know. It's so hard to know. So I don't know. So I, yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I gave Kickstarter 12 years of my life and 
uh, and I'm so thrilled to have done that. And now I feel like, you know, my life so far has been a series of like decade long projects. So, you know, I'm, I'm ready for what the next one is. And I, I think it's happening as well. I think it is right. So good segue into your book. So you came up with a book recently called A Manifesto for a More Generous World. Yeah, this could be our future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. Yeah. And how much of that is based on your experiences with Kickstarter? I mean, the motivation for it, very much so. You know, what's funny is like, I grew up only wanting to be a writer. And while working as a music journalist, like I got jobs in editorial organizations. And I discovered that I was good at being an editor, being a, a manager, being a strategist. And as a creative person, I felt guilty about it. I felt like a class trader for being good at being inside an organization because that, uh, for me, like sort of the the creative era I came up in, like there's a big divide between art and business. And so as I started to bridge that gap, I, that was like very hard for me. But that gap doesn't exist anymore? Is still yeah, I, I don't think that gap really exists anymore because now it's like, Right. As an artist, you're supposed to read Seth Godin books to like learn how to market your things. And as a business person, it's like you're supposed to learn TM, like maybe you do you you like read David Lynch or something. I feel like that line has blurred, but that line used to be a wall. And I come from the generation that it was a wall. And I, I very much felt us as Kickstarter is like really bridging that and really feeling conflicted about it. Is the breaking down of the wall a good thing or a bad thing? Jury's out. <laughs> I think I think maybe the jury's out. I mean, I think that it's probably a good thing because it's it's brought artists and creative people more fully into the mainstream of like tools being made for them, like capitalism working for them, like they're a client of capitalism, whereas before maybe as an artist you stayed slightly outside of it. Is that good or bad is like a serious question. But I think it's good. I mean I I subscribe to the theory that what we now live in is what we'll call metamodernism. And metamodernism is simply about just trying to find what's useful without judgment. Um, so someone who's a metamodernist might say, like, hate Amazon, but read Jeff Bezos's shareholder letter every year because it's really smart. And so to me, a, a metamodern view says, like, yeah, of course, you take the best parts of business, you take the best parts of art, you take the best parts of everything. But no question, there's things lost with that. So let's talk about business. You and your co-founders ran Kickstarter in a very unconventional way by Silicon Valley standards. So I was like an art creative person who came to the business world. And then in Kickstarter was like that times 10. And, you know, from the beginning, as founders, we had said, like, we didn't want to try to sell the company. We didn't want IPO. Like, we wanted to create something that was meaningful for the long term. And so we would talk about this stuff publicly. And then at some point, our, our lawyer pointed out that, you know, theoretically, we could be sued um, for the things that we were saying, because as a traditional C-Corp for-profit business, uh, the legal expectation was that all of our choices are supposed to maximize shareholder value. And if we're going around saying we're not looking to sell, then that is actually suppressing that potential shareholder value and someone could sue us for that. And, you know, the idea of like having our values and and trying to be so so on point in how we run the company, but also exist within a legal structure that theoretically we're violating just like seemed really wrong. And eventually like this whole sort of line of thinking led us to become a public benefit corporation um, so that we would, would be legally required to balance our duties to shareholders, our financial responsibilities with producing a positive benefit to society with our non-financial responsibilities. 
And was it a surprise to you that you could get in trouble for not wanting to sell the company? As we dug into this and I learned about the history of it, I, I was just so shocked to discover that this expectation that companies must maximize shareholder value is so recent. It's like about 50 years old. And yet it's treated like this is like the the most central law uh, of all of business. Um, yet it's so new. And, and so... You know, the book I write and the, and the areas I'm exploring are pulling on that thread and basically saying so much of our world is based on this presumption that is way more recent than we believe. And also, you know, any real critical thought will reveal that, of course, the spectrum of value is far wider than just financial value. And of course, businesses and all of us like impact all sorts of different forms of value and, and impact not just ourselves, but others in the future, too. And yet we've relied on this like incredibly simplistic assumption to drive our world, to make the decisions of our world. And, and the consequences of this we're seeing, it's, it's climate change, it's death of entrepreneurship worldwide that we don't talk about. And so in the book, it's, it's sort of sharing this realization that I had while leading Kickstarter, of uh, just this system and structure that we live within. And then also like thinking creatively about how that can and should change and, and really to give it from the perspective of like not a bomb thrower activist, but as someone who reluctantly succeeded inside this system. In your book, you write about reframing our thinking so that profit and money is not the number one goal. Um, in the book, I introduce an idea called bentoism as, as a way to frame how we think about value and self-interest. And then more generally, I'm, I'm talking about the idea of post-capitalism, the notion of um, the moment that's already happening and will just accelerate, where financial value is no longer our sole or defining form of value that we use to make every decision. That actually decisions we made considering financial value alongside the ecological impact of a decision or alongside the social impact or the brand impact or the reputational impact, and that those things will end up becoming just as powerful as the dominance of money today. Um, and that this is the history that's happening right now that, you know, I think 30 years from now, we're going to wake up in a, in a world that will have evolved quite a bit from where we are now, but will happen maybe more gradually uh, than we expect. I love the idea of bentoism, the, the sort of concept of everything in moderation. The, the way at least I understand it is that you aim for 80% fullness as opposed to 100%, which would be gluttony. You know, you can see that so much through Japanese design and Japanese culture. It's a big ask, though, isn't it, to in, implement that sort of thinking in a market, in an economy, in a society as, as gluttonous as America? Um, for organizations, my sense as of right now is that they either are already there and caring about those things, or they just don't want to think about it. I have heard from organizations that are like extremely famous companies that have reached out saying we're commercially successful, but we've realized we have no meaning in the market. No one actually cares about us. Like we don't stand for anything. What should we do about that? So what do they do about it? How can they make a change? I think that these things change by people's beliefs and priorities changing, and then companies changing their strategies to meet like the new zeitgeist of what people are thinking about. But I think that the kinds of changes that I'm imagining, which is that we see beyond our immediate self-interest, that we learn to incorporate not just ourselves and our choices, but the people that we are accountable to. Uh, I think that the climate change is going to force that to happen. A lot of these things are going to happen not because we want them to, but just because like the situation will force us to. 
do I think that the world is going to be bentoist tomorrow? Uh, no. Do I think over the course of uh, a generation that it's possible for uh, our perspective of responsibilities and our perspective of value to shift in major ways? Yes, because it happens all the time. It happens all the time. The question is, can you try to direct that towards a specific outcome? Um, right. You read someone like Danella Meadows, who wrote The Limits of Growth, like amazing uh, systems designer from the 80s and 90s. You know, she'll say that what changes systems, it's shifts in paradigms, norms, and values. If the assumptions that systems are based on change, then everything about the system will change. But if you try to tinker with like, here's what we're optimizing for here and there, or here's a rule here and there, um, then you will not create fundamental change. And so for me, pulling on the thread of our belief in the primacy of financial value, our individualistic way of looking at the world, to me, those are the norms and values that are most powerful in the world right now. And, and those are the ones I'm trying to poke with a stick <laughs> in such a way that they might you know, shift a little bit. What you did with Kickstarter, what you guys did with Kickstarter, was create a new way for um, to create a sustainable business, a sustainable community on the internet without it being advertising or subscription-based. The majority of the web is paid for through advertising or subscription dollars. So going forwards, how can we use the internet, make sure that the creators are getting paid in a way that, that is different than just straight-up advertising or subscriptions, which... Be honest with there's only there's a limit to how many subscriptions we can all have. Yeah, it's it seems like there should be. I, it's funny. I was like starting to do my taxes last night, and I couldn't believe like how much money I'm just spending on internet content. Like every year, you know, every year I look at <laughs> yeah. my spending, but like how much do you spend? I don't even know if I added it up together. It, maybe it's a thousand dollars. Wow. You know, if I think okay. about newspaper subscriptions, newsletters, I pay it was something like that. But I, when I looked at that, I was like, "Whoa, that's it's a lot of money." I mean, I've always I've always been a media consumer, but even when I was subscribing to magazines, I never spent anything close to that. So I, I looked at them like, "Do I need to cancel some things?" Like, what's? Uh, I think you do, Yancy. <laughs> there, there's never been a better time to be an artist than right now, which is also why it's like the worst time to be an artist because there's so many people doing it. You know, it's the same reason why, like, you can tell LA is paradise because of how bad traffic is. Okay, so I want to talk about your dark forest theory of the internet, which is about how people are retreating from places like Facebook and Twitter and instead gravitating towards these micro communities. I'm 41 years old and I'm like uh, very comfortable being who I am. Uh, at a dinner party or whatever, but like, I'm super awkward on the internet. I don't know how to be myself on the internet. And I was trying to think about why this was. And I, I thought about this, there's this series of books by a Chinese science fiction author named Shishin Lu uh, called The Three-Body Problem. And in one of them, uh, he has a story about how when humankind looks up into space, we just see darkness. We send out messages looking for other forms of life and we get no response. And so because we don't see anyone, because we don't hear from anyone, that leads us to assume that we are the only people in the universe. But uh, instead, consider a, a dark forest at night. A dark forest, you look around, you don't see any animals, you don't hear anything, you might call out and not hear any kind of response. That might also lead you to think that a dark forest is empty, but of course a dark forest is full of life. It's just that everyone's realized that it's too dangerous to show yourself. And so the, the alternate theory of the universe is that the universe is full of life. It's just everyone else has already learned that it's too dangerous to show yourself and it's just earth. 
that is the the newcomer on the block that's dumb enough to to wave our hands. And so I think the challenge of being yourself on the internet is that the internet feels like a dark forest. It feels like if you raise your hand, you are just simply making yourself vulnerable to attack or vulnerable to manipulation by advertising, by trolls, by whatever, whatever, whatever that might be. And so people have realized this and so that these public places are hollowing out and they're being left to just the most extreme voices. And instead, the only places people are being real are in WhatsApp groups and Slack and, you know, smaller channels because people have realized it's too dangerous to show themselves. And so we have this internet of most people's actual selves being held back because there's there's great fear of the vulnerability of that. And it, it's funny how that switched. I mean, like 12 years ago, 10 years ago, like there was nothing cooler than being vulnerable on the internet. Um, and now being vulnerable on the internet is just vulnerable. You know, it's just, it's just dangerous. There are still like ways to do this. There are the people on Twitter who are amazing at this kind of thing. Um, but even then, I think they're probably showing a bit of a persona rather than being truly vulnerable. It's somehow comforting to hear that even you have a hard time being yourself on the internet. It's a strange dynamic, especially when we consider just how central the internet has become to all of human life. You know, it used to be like the internet is not real life, but the internet is real life. It's, it's, it's a real life layered on top of the real life we're already living in. And so it's, it's tough. So, I, you know, I try to adopt a mindset of like, I'm going to try to get good at the internet. Coming into yourself as a human being is a wonderful thing. Coming into yourself as an internet human being, maybe that's also a wonderful thing. I found it hard. I have my moments, but it's scary to put your head out there too much. Well, I was going to ask you if you actually like advertising. Uh, no, I don't. I don't like advertising. At Kickstarter, we always knew there would never be advertising on the site, um, nor I don't think Kickstarter's ever advertised either. Um, never? I don't think so. Wow. I don't, maybe there's like an Instagram ad test at some point, but no, not not in any real way. Um, but I think that marketing is important. I mean, I, I remember reaching a point when I was CEO of Kickstarter. I was like, had a time to some time to think, and I thought, all right, so how do I reach people that would be interested in Kickstarter that don't already know about it. And I just thought, oh shit, that's marketing and advertising. <laughs> I think I think that's a big <laughs> that's a big category of stuff that I'm trying to imagine. But uh, So last question. If uh, your ideal internet, there's no advertising in it, how is it being paid for? Subscription, I think subscription's a pretty good model. I think that makes sense. And you know, I love I love the idea if it just can be like you know, it's just the same 20 bucks floating around. You know, I think there were times where there was that criticism of Kickstarter of like, oh, it's just everyone just passing like the same $20 back and forth to each other. Right. And I like, why is that a bad thing? That seems awesome. Like I use it for what I need it and then you use it for what you need it. So I feel like a, a flow like that could actually be great. I feel like people supporting each other, I, that can get us almost all the way there. Nice. Yancy, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for starting Kickstarter. Thank you for your newsletters and bentoism. And I wish you all the best with your mission because I think it's a big one, an important one. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the great conversation. And that's our episode today. A big, big thank you to Yancy Strickler for injecting a little optimism into our dark times. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with help from Elise Hugh and Isabeth Mendoza. And sound engineering by Mark Bush, with a very special thank you to Center Sound. 
Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really helps spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with the all-new Reasonable Volume. Thank you so much for listening.